beautiful mamas. Well, here we go. You did it. After today, you got go through the Constitution. And I dare say you know more about the Constitution than most of the citizens in this country. Now, you will definitely want, you will definitely, sorry, let me pull my little blankie up here. I have to keep my door open because my doggie is going to go in and out. I don't want her to bark. But you will know more about the Constitution than the average citizen. And it's really this little uh, manual here. I hope you're keeping up and buying all these little manuals. Uh, I think it's four, four for $50 you can get on the Moms for America store. This little manual has been my treasure. When I have been confused, when people evoke constitutional law or constitutional rights that just doesn't sound right to me, I go to this little manual because to me, it breaks it down in the most easiest way to understand. And, and it's like scripture. Uh, look, the first time I went through, I had no notes and now I have a ton of notes. So this Healing of America seminar is not a one-time deal. You want to take it over and over again, just like you read the, the you know, holy writ over and over again. And depending on where you are, or what's going on, certain points strike you differently. So write down little notes and it will become a treasure trove of being able to understand these fine points of the constitution, what our founding fathers intended when it was struck off by the hand of God, they gave credit for, and how it's been misinterpreted and distorted. And if you don't know what the founders intended, you just go along with what modern day pundits are saying is constitutional. And so it's just imperative that, you know, you have this little journal, this little seminar book, and you fill in the blanks and you take these notes and, and you review it and you keep taking. I would recommend taking the Healing of America seminar once a year. So all the classes are online, you recorded, you can watch them, or we try and always offer a live, at least once a year, Healing of America seminar, where we bring in pertinent current events that are, are right going on right now and how it pertains to the constitution. So let's see the first slide and maybe onto the second slide. So hopefully we all have a good working knowledge now of how the constitution is organized. There are seven articles, there are 27 amendments. Let's go to that next slide. So last week, remember, we talked about the last four articles in the Constitution. We talked about states' rights, that full faith and credit clause where each state needed to be able to recognize driver's licenses or marriage certificates or other kind of licensing or diplomas or certificates. And, and we talked about that uh, natural rights versus special acquired rights as a privilege of the citizen of that state and how that clause morphed into, along with a, a section that was taken out of the 14th Amendment, the reason why gay marriage was legalized nationally in 2013. So it's important to kind of understand uh, how, how uh, some of that wording was used to make it the point of law upon which the Supreme Court ruled uh, in 2013. And then we talked about the, uh, how to amend the constitution and the supremacy clause, how the supreme law of the land uh, was to be the constitution the statutes that were um, made by members of Congress in the legislative branch, the laws, pursuant to the Constitution, okay, so keeping within those 20 enumerated powers that the Constitution gave our congressmen, they can make statutes or laws, and then treaties, that was to be the supreme law of the land, not executive orders that were supposed to only apply to the executive branch of the president administering over his special branch, and certainly not judicial legislation that uh, the Supreme Court or the courts might make, okay? That is not the supreme law of the land. And then how to ratify. And then we talked about the Bill of Rights, which are the, what? The first 10 amendments of the constitution, and that is what our founding fathers gave us along with 11 and 12. And we'll talk about what 11 and 12 are, but the Bill of Rights are known as the first 10 amendments and that very first Bill of Rights, uh, the right to be able to worship according to the dictates of our own conscience, to have free exercise of religion. And then remember how we also talked about how Jefferson's quote when he was president in 1802, that, that there must be a separation of church and state, how that statement was distorted 150 years later and that was the means by which the courts 
felt justified to be able to begin to take prayer out of school in the 50s and 60s, to take Bible reading out of school. I mean, when I lived in Oregon with my little family about 15 years ago, we couldn't even say the Pledge of Allegiance because it said God, and they felt that was an establishment of religion. Now, this would have just made our founding father's hair uh, curl because they very much wanted religion and morality taught along with knowledge in the schools. And so you can see how the courts began to dis, uh, distort and um, misinterpret uh, what the founders intended, probably because they weren't real studiers of the founders and that original intent. And then of course that amendment nine and 10 that they were so clearly trying to spell out that only limited and carefully defined powers could be given to the federal government and everything else was to be determined by the states and the people. So if the constitution was silent on certain issues, they wanted that issue to go back to the states to, to determine and its people to determine. Now, I want you to really understand that the purpose of the constitution was to protect the families, all right? The founders wanted the families protected because they knew when a, a nation had strong families, they would have strong societies and it would ensure a strong country. And so they wanted that constitution to pr protect the family because they knew God's program is the family. Look, in the very beginning of Bible, he gave Adam and Eve to, to join together, to cleave into one another and to multiply and procreate. Now it's important to, to remember that Satan, he will never have a family. So he is attacking our family, all right? So this really is, we're in a battle for good uh, versus evil. So our founders knew their highest priority was to protect that family. Uh, you know, the enemies of freedom love people to think they need a kingly government, a government that can solve all of your problems. And they kind of want people to be in the dark or ignorant. Let's see that next slide. And so they want, uh, you know, people that want concentrated centralized power, they want to keep the electorate, the citizenry kind of emotionally directed by their fears, not principally based. And we saw this in COVID when there was so much fear and unknown and they were <laughs> you know, the, the, the headlines, no wonder people got under their beds and didn't come out for a year. And, and if you can create fear in people, oftentimes fear, ignorance and fear will equal hate. And then you find people really enmity and, and pitted up against each other because some people were wearing masks and some people weren't. You would have thought we were the worst enemies of, at, at that time. And so what happens is if you can kind of keep an electorate ignorant and, and kind of fearful, then their voting is motivated by fear. So we've seen in the last few years, voting has, ha, people aren't going to the polls for what they believe in. They're going to vote for what they are against. So if we don't know the constitution, we're drawn into this emotionalism. Now we just have to keep reminding ourselves as we study history, as we study prophecy and holy writ, this nation will endure. And we know in second Chronicles 7:14, God will heal our land as we turn to him. So, you know, I think what we're seeing in the last several decades is this kind of apathy. We just have kind of been distracted and too busy. We haven't stayed uh, rooted in our founding principles. We haven't been educating ourselves. If we will turn to God and we will stay wise and knowledgeable in our principles, it will justify the heavens to intervene and God will heal our land. Let's see that next slide. One of the principles of liberty in the 5,000 year leap, you know, that book that I just love, that these are 28 principles that our founders used to establish this land. The very last principle says the United States has a manifest destiny to be an example and a, and a blessing to the entire human race. Our founding fathers understood that this was a, a, we were a remnant of the house of Israel. And because of that, we were going to be under that umbrella of protection of covenant living people if we abided by God's law and that we would be able to be an example and a blessing to everyone in the world. We would, through the constitution, they wanted our constitution to be our greatest export because it would elevate the lifestyle 
of those that modeled their constitutions after this one, it would elevate everyone's life because we're now living under principles of maximum freedom, you know, the right to buy, try, sell, and even fail. Let's see that next slide. Many of our early leaders, I mean, one of the first little governors to the new world, uh, John Withrop, remember him in 1630, one of the Puritan um, colonists and governors, he evokes that uh, phrase from Matthew in uh, scripture that, that this new nation was going to be a light uh, on the world, a city that is the, that would be a light of the world, that a city uh, that is set on a hill could not be hid. And George Washington, he, he himself, because he knew this, he said, the constitution will be a, a, a guide which I will never abandon. The constitution, I will never abandon this guide because he knew it came from God and God was governing in the affairs of this land. Lincoln said the United States was the last best hope of man on this earth. And then we began to hear Ronald Reagan evoke as he would speak, um, you know, that, that America was this shining city on a hill and JFK talked about this being a city on the hill that all eyes of the people were going to be on this country. And even President Obama, when he was a, a US Senator would use this phrase city on the hill. I don't recall him using it when he was president, but of course this, this idea, this notion came from that salt and light sermon on the Mount. And so this is very much what our founders, how they felt and how they revered the work that they were doing in this land and government that they were establishing. So in order for us to stay shiny and bright and an example to the world, we have to understand the principles that made us so great in the early beginning. And so let's turn, uh, uh, actually, let's, let's, let's go to full screen for just a moment. Let's turn to our amendments 11 through 27. Now, uh, amendments 11 and 12, our founding fathers gave us, let's go to a full screen for me, with me for just a moment there. Trust okay, me. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. And, and so uh, uh, amendments 13 through 15 came directly after the Civil War. Okay, so that was about, it's going to, we're going to have about a 50 year period from amendment 12 to amendment 13. And then in the night, then there was going to be about another 50 year gap. And then we were going to get amendments 16 through 27 in the 1900s. So let's just discuss real quick amendments 11 and 12. The 11th amendment came forth just a few years after the constitution was adopted and George Washington was the president. But it just said that a state could not be sued by an individual citizen of another state. So what they were trying to do, what had happened is a man from South Carolina, Chisholm, sued the state of Georgia and the federal government got involved and compelled the, the state to hear this case. And they began to get nervous about that because they wanted to restrict the federal courts from getting involved in cases between an individual state, an, an individual and a state. So for instance, if a, a man uh, living in Rhode Island wanted to sue New, the state of New Hampshire, he had to go to the state of New Hampshire and he had to go through that New Hampshire court. And so it was just a way of the 11th amendment from restricting uh, the judicial federal power. Because remember our founders were very sensitive about an overreaching federal government. They had just broken off from King George. So they wanted maximum rights and privileges to, to be determined locally. All right. And so that was just clarification uh, of a restriction of, of how the federal courts uh, couldn't get involved in between a uh, decision or a, um, a, suit, a lawsuit against an individual and another state. Now, the 12th Amendment corrected a weakness in the Electoral College uh, that, remember, each elector from the states could vote for, for had two votes for president. And this, the person that got the, uh, the second, <laughs> the least amount of votes would become the vice president. So what that meant is it meant that often the person that ran against the winner is the vice president and they didn't get along. And right out of the gate, Thomas Jefferson was a, a, an anti-federalist and Adams was a federalist. Adams won that election. And so we were asking Jefferson to be, you know, the running mate and partner with a man that he was opposed 
politically. And so they realized this wasn't going to work out so well. So what the 12th Amendment did is they just tweaked that electoral college and provided for separate ballots for the president and the vice president. All right. And then ultimately, there was another tweaking of that electoral college in the 1800s when they just put the vice president as a true running mate and put him on the presidential ballot. So there was a little bit of tweaking. No one had done this electoral, electoral college experience before. And so there was just a, a tweak to, to provide for separate ballots for the president and vice president. So you didn't get the two guys that ran for president having to serve together like, like they did for the first two presidents. Adams, Adams and Jefferson served together and uh, Aaron Burr ran against Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr lost. So he had to be Jefferson's vice president and they didn't get along either. And so they had this kind of clarifying 12th amendment. Okay, so now we go about 50 years before a new amendment was going to be put in that our original founding fathers did not establish. And that came about by the 13th, let's see that next slide. The 13th amendment declared uh, slavery illegal. It prohibited slavery. And Abraham Lincoln initiated this amendment, but then he would be assassinated. So this was passed this amendment a few months after Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, was killed. And then the 14th amendment, let's have that next slide. This amendment, so the 13th, 14th, and 15th all came within a few years of each other. And, and this basically said all persons born or naturalized in the United States and are subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge, abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the US, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, I wanted to read that whole amendment to you because what our founding fathers intended was all former slaves were to have full citizen rights. All right, this is what they intended for this 14th Amendment. But uh, there's a few sentences that the courts through the years would distort and twist. And this is the reason why we have same-sex marriage legalized uh, nationally now because of a few lines from this 14th Amendment. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So what happened is, uh, you know, time went on and this began to be the cover or protection for illegal immigrants who would illegally come into our country and then have a child here. And so under that equal protection of laws, that child was allowed to stay. And because the, you know, the mother and the father were in the States, they were allowed to stay as well. And so you can see how that was really discriminatory against those people who were trying to come into the United States legally trying to abide by the law while illegal people were being rewarded under this equal protection clause that originally was meant to give um, former slaves all equal rights and protections as citizens of the United States. And then what we see here where it says, no state shall make or enforce any law that shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States or deprive them of life, liberty, or the protection of the uh, of due process of law or equal protection of the law. What we began to see now is the federal government began to be the backstop if any states weren't giving um, you know, uh, equal rights, so to speak, within the states. And so this provision originally about you know, making sure that the states were going to give equal protection of rights to the people in their state, this provision, when it was written in 1865, was meant to punish the Southern states if they would not compel against eliminating slavery, because that's mostly where slavery was taking place in 1865, was in those Southern states. Uh, so if they, if they chose not to abolish and abide by the 13th Amendment, this, this provision in uh, Amendment 14 allowed the federal government to get involved and to punish the states, all right? But what happened is it began to fly kind of in the face of limited government and the rights that should be retained by the people because what happened under this rule of law 
this equal protection wording. This is what the Supreme Court would cite in 2013 uh, to, as a means to legalize uh, same-sex marriage because same-sex marriage was legal in Massachusetts, but it wasn't uh, recognized in Wyoming. And that was a, a, you know, um, an abridgment of this equal protection of law. And that, so, so uh, I can imagine the founding fathers uh, were not happy with the way that was distorted to legalize something that is, uh, you know, clearly against God's law. And, and you know, and, and not necessarily protection to the family that God has set forth. And so it also what it did, this, you know, these misinterpretations now, this 14th Amendment, it opened up the door for the federal government to be able to go in and punish states. And remember that little preamble to the, the Bill of Rights actually says, as a reminder again, in addition to the Ninth and 10th Amendment, that these Bill of Rights were to be restrictive clauses on the federal government and, and it was to prevent the federal government from misconstruing or abusing its power. And this is what we see how the 14th Amendment has been abused in the courts. So some will say in order to heal our constitution, we need to come and we need to clean up some of this poorly worded language in the 14th Amendment that's been misconstrued. And we will talk about this in our last seminar, how to heal the constitution. So it's important to understand what the founders meant by this 14th, uh, 14th Amendment and what it has uh, evolved into becoming. Okay, the 15th Amendment, let's see that next slide, uh, Tressie, just simply said that uh, black people had the right to vote, all right, and um, and that's that's a good thing. <laughs> this is this is a good amendment. Let's go back to that fifteenth uh, amendment slide. But oh yeah, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. Let's so so what I'm saying is this fourteenth amendment was misconstrued to allow you know the problem that we have now at the border. And then let's see that next slide. And was the point of law which the Supreme Court gave equal protection clause in the 14th Amendment and the due process clause uh, in the 14th Amendment were the points of laws they use to legalize uh, uh, gay marriage. Okay, so let's go now to the, so black people are allowed to vote, that's the 15th Amendment, but you also need to understand in the constitution in article one verses two, it actually says the states were allowed to determine who could vote. So it, it told the states you, you know, that they can determine uh, who can vote. And at this time, uh, when this 15th Amendment was put forth, um, two states had women that were voting because the states in the, in, the, in the very first article in the Constitution say it says that the states can determine. And so what this amendment did is it, it began to grow. Can you see now we're growing the federal government uh, federal power a little bit. We're setting a new precedent for a new way of thinking. We're expanding the federal uh, uh, powers and we're diminishing the state powers. Okay. So, so no one is going to say, look, the 15th amendment was a bad idea. It's not, but you can see now we're allowing these amendments to overpower some of this, the state's rights. Okay. All right. The 16th amendment about 50 years later, we get the 16th and 17th amendments. And I just wanna give you a heads up. These two amendments are probably the most egregious amendments that have disrupted the balance of power and put us in uh, uh, some of the position that we are now with the federal uh, executive branch being way more powerful because it removes some of the checks and balances on the federal government. And really the 16th amendment put us on the road to big government and socialistic ideas that the government should provide programs to solve our problems. And what the 16th amendment basically did, it, was, uh, it laid a direct tax on people's incomes. Now, what our founders intended, and it says so in article one, section eight, that the government was to, to lay a, a tax on the state for their part of the federal budget. And then the state was to determine how they were gonna tax the people in order to come up with their part 
of the federal budget to pay for the programs. So it, it kept the programs small and in control because all the states had to pay for all these programs that the government you know, might come up with. So uh, this directly superseded a certain part of that Article One, this 16th Amendment, by directly now being able to go into our personal wallets and, and taxing us. And really, this kind of was a program to begin to soak wealthier people, soak the rich, is what you know the, pro the opponents of this. Now, in um, Article One of the Constitution that the founders gave us, they said that people should be taxed uniformly, kind of like a tithing. If you make a lot of money, you make you pay 10% tithing on a lot of money. If you make a little bit of money, you pay 10% on a little bit of money, but at least it's uniform and fair. But with the 16th Amendment, it implemented a graduated income tax. So if you made more money, you were taxed more. So really, in a way, talking about unconstitutional, it violates people's equal protection of their resources because wealthy people, their money is less sacred because they now have to pay more than less wealthy people. Do you see how that began to become unfair? And so what it did is it grew the coffers of the federal government because now there were a lot of money was coming in and they could get all kinds of programs and they could produce all kinds of taxes on things and then they could spend all kinds of money with all kinds of programs and, and uh, uh, the Congress people in the House of Representatives like this idea of tax, 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 spend, 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 because it reassured them that they would get reelected. The people in their hometowns would like all these programs and monies that they're bringing from the federal government into their states, and it would ensure their reelection. So, and, and then about 20 years after the 16th and 17th Amendments, uh, there was a Supreme Court decision uh, that was handed down called the Butler case. And that, along with the 16th and 17th Amendment, um, <laughs> put us on the road to socialism because this uh, decision in the Butler case in 1936, and there's actually a one-page explanation of the Butler case at the end of this seminar, seminar two, that explains it. But basically, the judicial opinion held that, that the, the federal government could tax and spend for whatever purposes they considered beneficial to promote the general welfare of the country. Now, remember that general welfare clause in the preamble meant they were, the government was just to oversee the, the well-being of the general state of this nation. Well, the Supreme Court interpreted that to mean any specific parts of you know, welfare help that they needed to, the government had carte blanche to get involved because now they had all this money. And so let's turn to the 17th Amendment. So the 16th and 17th Amendment were passed just months uh, uh, from each other and they kind of go hand in hand. The 17th Amendment, did you realize that until 1913, senators, US senators were elected by state, their state legislatures, not the people. So House of Representatives that are in for every two years were elected by the people, but senators who are elected for every six years were uh, uh, put in by the state legislature. And George Washington was one of the foremost opponents of the senators being elected by the state legislature. And remember that conversation that Thomas Jefferson had when he came back after the constitution had been written because Jefferson was overseas as a, an ambassador over in Europe. And he asked, why do this, why aren't, why aren't the senators voted in by the citizenry? And then Tom, uh, Washington poured his little tea in his saucer and he said, uh, it's the same reason, why, why do I pour tea into the saucer? And Jefferson said, and then let it sit. He's like, well, it's to cool it. And, and Washington said, that is what the Senate is for. The Senate is to cool down that hot-headed, imprudent legislation that might come from the House. Because House members, remember, are elected every two years. So they're that wing of compassion. They want to solve the problems. They want to uh, have new programs so that you know they'll be deemed as a hero in their states. So they'll get reelected every two years. Whereas the Senate, was able to uh, maybe veto any radical movements that might infringe upon the rights of the state or you know, uh, 
it might be too onerous financially for the state to, to pay for all these programs that, that the house was proposing. And, and it allowed the states to be more sovereign and separated from the federal government. And so um, they were gonna be kind of that, like the watchman on the tower to protect the states from an overreaching federal government telling the states, you know, what they must and must not do. And so 20 years before this 17th amendment was passed, so what, what the amendment did, it, it, um, it, it, it now was going to allow the popular vote to put in the senators, not their state legislatures. Now there was a 20 year campaign to have the senators be elected, started in the late 1800s to have the senators be elected by the citizenry of the state and not the state legislature. And we'll talk about why certain people wanted this to happen. Uh, it, it was uh, the master planners have, do, do some of these names, the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, the, um, the Rothschilds, they didn't like how the Senate could slow down legislation that would be detrimental to their industries and business. And they couldn't buy off the senators like they could the congressmen because the senators were beholden to the state legislatures. They, could, they couldn't you know, be, be given special privileges by these wealthy men. And so some of these master planners were behind this populist movement. So now instead of uh, in 1913, the senators coming home every weekend uh, to ask, you know, the state legislature about certain federal bills that were being proposed and how uh, the, 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 they should vote on it. They now, um, they were just more beholden. They started acting more like representatives. The, the more programs they could get for their state, the better, because that would ensure their reelection. Did you know senators, it, on an average, it takes about 16 million up to, to 30 and beyond million to get reelected as a Senate position. Some of those big states, it's 30 million. And so, you know, they say the first time a senator now since 1913, the first time a senator runs for office, he is elected by the people in his state. But the second time and every other time after he is mostly elected by uh, PACs or special interest groups that are oftentimes even outside of the state in which he resides. Uh, and, and so that's how he gets his money now to be reelected. So no one is now standing on that you know, tower on the wall protecting the states. Um, let's see that next slide. I recommended these two little YouTube videos, but it explains so well the constitution that our founding fathers gave us and then the constitution we have now because of some of these amendments that have come later on in the 1900s and how it has disrupted the checks and balances on the three branches of government. And so um, anyways, this 1913 was a bad year for our country. That was the year the 16th Amendment was passed, the year the 17th Amendment. And it was also the year that the Federal Reserve under Wood, uh, Woodrow Wilson came to be. And that was the Federal Reserve was basically when we handed over the control of our finances to private banks and international banks. And they began to control the dollar the uh, money with, uh, with tax dollars. And so don't let that name, the Federal Reserves, confuse you. There is nothing federal about the Federal Reserves and there is no reserves because we came off the gold and silver standard when it was established. So there is no reserves uh, in, in the Federal Reserve. We will talk more about the Federal Reserve in the 16th and 17th Amendment um, in seminar three as well. I'm not going to lie to you, it took me several times of going through this seminar to really understand how harmful the 16th and 17th Amendment uh, was. The solution, it's an easy fix. You just repeal the 16th and 17th Amendment and you go back to what our founding fathers intended, all right? Okay, so let's go to the, sorry, that was a long explanation, but those are two really important amendments to understand the egregious nature and how it shifted the balance of power. Um, and how it was uh, allowed our, you know, uh, leaders, political leaders to be manipulated or bribed or influenced and how it grew the coffers of the federal 
government with now the ability to tax us directly and to put a tax on whatever they deem nece necessary for the general welfare of this nation. Okay, so the 18th Amendment is kind of an interesting one. It feels kind of old fashioned to me, but I really like the idea behind it. They made alcohol beverages illegal. Now, this was a long campaign that started even before the Civil War uh, to be to um, uh, to to make alcohol illegal, and it, it was um, and and I I I I really like it. It was a social movement that um, you know was against the consumption of alcoholic beverages, and it would it cited the negative effects on health and on family and on the personal impact and. Uh, you know, and some, uh, my husband's father is an alcoholic, so I can attest firsthand how destructive alcohol could be. And so they, so they legalized, they, they made alcohol illegal in what was that 1919. Um, two years before in 1917, Congress actually during World War I passed an act uh, outlawing the use of alcohol because they needed to use it for, um, uh, munitions and manufacturing. And so it, it caused the country to go dry, but then they, just to ensure that it was going to stick, they passed this amendment. The problem with this amendment, and it might have stuck if it only uh, um, made illegal hard liquor, but it also made illegal, um, what's the word for it? Lighter, lighter alcohol. Uh, uh, beer and wine and some of uh, these uh, ethnic groups that were migrating to America, they drank wine with every meal. It was like water. And so because there was such a scarcity of, you know, there are little wines or beers, people began to make it at home and hence the bootlegging and the speakeasy. And this is where some say the Kennedys made <laughs> their money and got rich was during this era uh, of bootlegging. And this is why some people will say the Kennedys never were accepted into society because this is how they made their money from an illegitimate source. And so we, you see the prices of alcohol going up because it's being made behind closed doors. And then you see uh, the gangster era and rum running and racketeering and criminal violence began to uh, hoop up uh, because of this prohibition amendment. So what would happen 14 years later, they would repeal this amendment. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice idea, but once again, it's growing the federal government to determine, you know, what should have been determined in the states. Let the states decide their uh, alcohol laws. And that's what the amendment that was going to come, the 21st amendment did. And, and so, you know, look, if we base our laws on God's law, we already know God tells us our body is a temple. We need to take care of our temple. It says all throughout scripture, it warns us about strong drink and we should have, you know, health in our navel, marrow in our bones. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea, but was it a, a something that the federal government should have uh, added to the constitution? I personally don't think so, but I, I can see where their heart was going here. Okay, let's go to the 19th Amendment. That was the women got the vote a uh, hundred years ago in 1920. So we had the hundred year anniversary in 2020. And it said, even though already in the constitution in article one, uh, uh, sections one and two, it says the states can determine who can vote. And by the time this amendment was passed in, in 1920, 20 states had already given women the vote. But we nevertheless put forth, and I really do think if we didn't have this amendment, the women in each state would have advocated and we eventually would have all, you know, had the right to vote. But um, let's see that next slide. So three years ago, oh, the crazy things I've been asked to do through the years. I had to speak. There's Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, three years ago, the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote, Kimberly Fletcher, our president, asked me if I dress up like a suffragette. And I thought, well, I guess so. There I am next to Benjamin Franklin. So we talked about how 100 years ago, we secured the right to vote. And but now, and this was right after the 2020 election, women rise up. We've now got to protect the vote and ensure election integrity. So that's what we talked about there. Okay, so let's uh, let's turn to the 20th Amendment. 
This is known as the lame duck amendment. Before this, um, congressmen, depending on what year they were voted in, might actually have to stay in office 13 months because every two years, the congressman, you know, there's a flip of, um, flip of the house. Is it every two years? Yeah, the whole house flips, or it can be every seat is up every two years. But the, the way it was set forth, some of these fellows, even if they lost their election, the term didn't end until the following year. So they were in for 13 months. And it also uh, gave liberties that when a president was elected in November, he wasn't actually inaugurated until March. So that for four months, there was a lame duck president. And sometimes problems can occur when you have lame ducks governing for that long. And so it just narrowed the time that congressmen from the time they are elected in, they're installed into office in about two months and same with the president. And so that's what the 20th amendment was. Okay, let's go to the 21st amendment. And that was just 14 years later after the prohibition is they, um, they repealed the 18th amendment. Now, remember that the 21st amendment didn't necessarily, it didn't legalize intoxicating beverages. It just simply turned the problem back to the states. So once again, if the state is silent on something our founding fathers wanted, if the constitution is silent, our founding fathers wanted the states to determine what was best uh, for, for from that state. Okay, let's look at the 22nd amendment. We're just clipping through now. And um, this put a term limit on the presidents. Up until this point, there was no term limits on the president of the United States. George Washington only served for two terms, eight years, and then he stepped down. So every man that served as president after George Washington just followed in the example of George Washington because our founding fathers believed that there was term limits and it was called voting. If you didn't like someone, you just voted them out of office. But then Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt comes along and he keeps running and he <laughs> he's now served 12 years as president. He's the author of the New Deal. He's left this legacy of big government and he would die uh, just a few months into his fourth term. And shortly after his death, they put forth this amendment to limit a presidential term just to two terms. Okay, and then the 23rd Amendment is interesting. Now remember in the, in the Constitution that our founders gave us uh, in Article 1, Section 8, they wanted um, the 12 by 12 mile radius of Washington, D.C. to be a politically neutral zone um, surrounding the capital area so that it wouldn't be politicized or become like a storm center of violence like, like they saw during um, the early history in in Philadelphia when it served as the capital. So this 23rd amendment superseded that article section in the art in article one section eight that our founders gave us because it gave Washington DC some voting rights. It gave them three electoral votes for a presidential election and also gave them um, a house of representatives who was able to vote in committee. Her name is Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's been in like 30 years. She's been in <laughs> since the entire time I've lived in Washington, D.C. I live in Washington, D.C., just a half a mile from the D.C. line. So I live about 20 minutes from that beautiful Washington monument that you're looking at. So because we gave Washington, D.C. some voting rights, it began to become very politicized. The 30, almost 30 years I've lived in Washington, D.C., I have never known <laughs> a Republican mayor or a Republican to sit on the city council. So I have lived here under five presidents, President Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. I went to Clinton's inauguration and then I took my children when they were little to President Bush's inauguration, the, uh, the parade and the swearing in. It was the most profane, explicit experience. The posters were just, uh, just you know, cuss words and people shouting out and swearing. I'm like, that was an X-rated experience I exposed my little children to because it's so politically hostile. Now, exactly what our founding fathers didn't want, but what this 23rd Amendment gave us. And 
And if you have any question about how politically divided Washington DC is, you should have been here a few years ago uh, during the elections of 2020 and all the looting and rioting and statutes that were torn down and desecrated. So um, uh, President Trump, when he was the president, you never saw him around town. The only safe place that President Trump could go was his hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. That's like the only restaurant he ever ate at there. It was, there was, a, was a delicious restaurant called BL, BLT Prime. And they had a special table reserved when the president would eat there, which was quite often. No one could sit at that table. So it, I would I would often take out of town visitors to eat at that restaurant there on Pennsylvania Avenue at Trump's hotel, but none of my friends that lived in DC would step foot in that hotel. And it's really one of the most beautiful hotels in town. And President Trump had to end up selling that hotel when his term ended because he had lost money. Uh, and but I saw I would see Clinton out about he uh, uh, like he would be at restaurants that I would be at sometimes in Georgetown and President Obama I'd see him out shopping in Union Station at Christmas time. Interesting enough, uh, President Biden I have not seen him not one time, and I think just because of his age, he just doesn't get out and about. But certainly he would be warmly received. Uh, but you can see how uh, this this Amendment Twenty Three. Uh, brought on the very thing that our founding fathers didn't want to happen. It's become a really um, political hot button of a place to reside. Okay, the 24th Amendment, are you all with me? Thank you, trustee. Just simply uh, stated that the Southern states were actually charging a little poll tax of a couple dollars uh, to go vote. And so this declared that that was illegal. And, and what it did is it discouraged poor black and poor white citizens. You know, if you had to actually pay to go vote, they just wouldn't vote. So they declared there can be no taxes or fees associated with voting. And then the next amendment, the 25th amendment, um, uh, oh my, this 25th amendment is trouble. <laughs> it possibly could allow for us to have a president and a vice president that's completely unelected. So the, in, the, in the constitution that our founding fathers gave us, it said in article two, section one, clause six, that if something happens to a president becomes incapacitated or he dies, simply the vice president takes uh, his place. And then when the next election comes around uh, within a two year time, then they uh, elect a new president. But this 25th amendment says that, uh, and this, this came after a few years after Kennedy was assassinated. So they used that as an excuse to pass this 25th Amendment. But what it says in this amendment in Section 3 says that um, the president, if the vice president thinks that the president has become incapacitated, he, along with half of the cabinet members, if eight out of 15 cabinet members uh, initiate um, the president being uh, kicked out or, or removed from office, they can remove the president. And it would be the vice president that initiates that. And then he has to get the support of eight other cabinet members. And so, uh, and, and but what it also says is, look, if the president doesn't feel like he's incapacitated, he can petition to Congress, but Congress has 21 days to determine if the president is fit to hold office or not. So imagine the harm that could come if for 21 days we had uh, someone that wasn't really elected by the people, the vice president, and then the vice president during that 21 days can choose uh, his or her vice, new vice president. And, and um, imagine if this had been the case during Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War when he stood completely alone in making some of these difficult decisions. And to be honest with you, after January 6th, Nancy Pelosi wanted to evoke, she uh, passed a resolution in the House to evoke this 25th Amendment, but uh, Mike Pence wanted nothing to do with, uh, you know, hoisting President Trump out of office, so it didn't go anywhere. But, but if, if the vice president can convince eight of the 15 cabinet members, they can actually remove our elected president. So it's kind of like Murphy's Law, if anything, could possibly go wrong. It could be, could with this 25th Amendment, it, it, it really could be seen as an opportunity for some nefarious maneuvering. So 
in order to heal the constitution, we would just repeal this amendment and get rid of it. And so I'm just giving you a few little ideas of how we would um, heal the constitution. Okay, let's turn to the 26th and 27th amendment. The 26th amendment just lowered the voting age from 21 down to 18. And this was pushed through Congress faster than any other amendment that has ever uh, has been seen. And opponents of this amendment were fearful that the sponsors were trying to uh, enlarge or develop a larger voting block among young people who are often susceptible to emotional appeal or political activism. And they're, and they're right. Did you know in this last election, the largest voting block of people that came out to vote was this uh, demographic age group of 18 to 23. 65% of that voting block voted for President Biden. But the whole idea is, look, if you're old enough to go uh, fight in a war at 18, you should be old enough to vote. And even President Eisenhower is the one who said that. And, and you know, if a president can send me to war, then I should be able to vote for him or not. And so it, the voting was voted to 18 in 1971. And then uh, the 27th Amendment, the very last amendment happened uh, in 1992, so about 30 years ago. And actually this amendment has been on the, on the books or sticking around since 1789 when President James Madison uh, put it forth. And it basically just said members of Congress cannot give themselves a raise while they are still in office. They must be on, on recess before, uh, or, or they must, you know, uh, they can't be serving while they're actively um, giving themselves a raise while in office. And um, to be honest with you, they have not had a raise since oh, 2012. So they don't actively give themselves raises, but that just ensures they can't give themselves a raise while they're still working or, or you know, in session. Okay. So one and all, I mean, just go ahead, let's pat ourselves on the back. We have gone through the constitution and studied it from the viewpoint of the founding fathers and that what came and what havoc was wreaked by some of these detrimental amendments. I dare say you probably know more than most uh, first, second, and maybe even third year law students when it comes to the constitution. So I hope what this, this four week um, study of the constitution has done is it's kind of refreshed your memory on the, the background of what our founding fathers intended. And, and maybe we discovered or rediscovered the founders original success formula of freedom, prosperity and peace that came uh, living under you know this um, free market economy and these ideas of prosperity economics and, and keeping the government limited. Living under these principles for the first hundred years, we, once again, you hear me use the statistic a lot, even though we had 6% of the world's population, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth. There was something beautiful about this freedom formula of giving people the maximum opportunity to try and to buy and to sell and, and to determine, you know, uh, their, their, their future moving forward without heavy regulation and restrictions on what they can and not can and not can and cannot do, and um, and I hope also we gain a better understanding of how to how we could solve some of the major problems of today if we went back to what was intended, uh, and so you know that's what you get when you study the Constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. You can understand why you know, some of these 15 amendments that came after what they gave us has caused some harm. So in seminar number three, hopefully you have that seminar number three, you've ordered it already. Um, we're going to, let's see that next slide, Tressie. So we've gone through, we're halfway through the seminar now. So we've gone through the miracles of America and establishing this land. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Okay. We can, we can stick here. So so anything that I might have said over the last four weeks, if you're like, I'm not really sure, I don't think I understand that. This Making of America book is, I think, one of the best resources because it takes line by line what the founding fathers intended. And it even goes into the amendments that they didn't give us and it explains maybe why it was contrary to what the founding fathers gave us. 
there's also another book i'm not sure if i brought it up yet we i will i will refer to it i refer to uh, it a lot in our cottage meeting series on thursday nights but this promises of the constitution gives little one and a half page vignettes that explains the 16th amendment and the 17th amendment and the 14th amendment and so it just helps you to understand it in kind of a nutshell and and, and helps you to explain it more simply so i kind of like that i really like um, both of these books and then let's see the next uh, slide and then of course that one page outline that hopefully it, it, it'll be put in the chat again and make 10 copies and put them in all your books because it just gives you a real brief like um cliff notes of the constitution and then i really like this book can you get it still enabling the people that really helps you to teach the 27 amendments for the kids so these are some of my favorite resources that i turn to 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 understand the constitution a little bit more. So let's see that next slide. So seminar number three next week, we're gonna talk about the attacks on the constitution. Who were these groups that, you know, systematically began to take down certain parts of the constitution? Who were these master planners? And why were millions of dollars spent on defaming and defiling the founding fathers? You need to understand there was a calculated effort to minimize the founders' lives because if you can get them to get us to think that they're perverts or degenerates or hypocrites or racists, it, it might um, uh, impact the way we study their teachings. It might minimize the people, hence it will minimize their teachings and their writings and we won't study what they gave us. And also we're gonna talk about what in the world happened to our education when we were you know, reading Bible stories and teaching the golden rule to where we are today. You will learn about uh, the uh, father of public education, Horace Mann and John Dewey, who we held up, you know, and these men were all disciples of Karl Marx and John Ingalls and the Frankfurt schools uh, that, that came along a, a, about a decade or two after Marxism that said our revolution is not gonna be economic like Marxists said it would, it's gonna be social. And from what transpired in those Frankfurt schools that you know they got their ideas from Marxism is why we have critical race theory today. And so we'll help you to connect the dots to why we are in the boat, in the mess, why we become unhinged, so to speak. So we don't, we won't know how to fix the problem until we know how the problem got broke. And so seminar number three can be a little bit jarring. I like to say sometimes I have to go in my closet and eat a tub of ice cream after I study seminar three, but we're, we're living seminar three. It's gonna ring very familiar to you because we're living it right now. So I think you'll find it fascinating, but we need to remember mamas that 85% of the constitution is intact. Only 15% has been broken. And so there's two ways, you know, God can get us to heal and to change. And one of them is the foreign intervention or internal collapse, the breakdown of children, of families, or the other way is for everyone to get involved, to learn these principles, to repent of our wicked ways and, and to humble ourselves and to seek God and he will forgive us and then he will heal our land. And I believe mamas are going to lead this movement, really, that when mamas have, you know, if we've seen the protective umbrella uh, of the Constitution being removed by these changes and distortions and misinterpretations of the Constitution, and we're feeling these fiery darts uh, from Washington, D.C., and godless curriculums and moral decay and censorship and, you know, uh, unconstitutional uh, court decisions we're feeling them penetrate into our homes so what that is doing is is and you're you're proof of it it's waking you up you're here today you're trying to know how can i be a part of justifying the heavens to intervene and heal this land so just as a reminder what do we do mamas let's see that last slide we we look to god okay we look to God, we pray morning and night, we take our children to God, we study the word, and then we keep that family close and we take that family to God <laughs> and we teach them the word. And this is why those 12 lessons on Thursday night are so good because I kind of break down what exactly this, how does this look like that you keep those children, those grandchildren close 
right now after the end of class today, I'm going right to the airport to fly across the country again to be with my three older kids. One of the girls is speaking at a large women's conference, thousands of people. And so she's like, mom, can you be there? And I'm like, well, perfect. Because sister the next day is graduating from college. And then the next day, it's one of the, the basketball players birthday. So I'm flying across the country to be with those kids in their important events to keep them close. And then, uh, you know, they all know mama studies the constitution. I teach it to the mothers. They're interested to hear what the mamas are doing. And, and so we, we continue to gather together online or in your own little cottage study groups in your neighborhoods and study these things and keep up with current events and, and discuss ways that we can strengthen our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, our state and our nation. And then as we do those first three things and as we're always praying, God will put on our heart what we need to do. Do I need to go to the rally in Austin, Texas? Do I need to start a family devotional with my children? Do I need to uh, start a little nightly call with my grandchildren to read them a patriotic book? Whatever it will be, God will put on our hearts to do something. I, I, I mean, I wish I had another hour to tell you all the ways uh, that women over the course of the years who have taken these classes have made changes God has put on their heart to do certain things once they got this knowledge in them. But just keep coming, just keep learning, and you will see this played out in your life that you will be anchored in hope and you will be able to anchor the people you love the most around you when everyone's you know, running to and fro saying the world's going to hell in a handbag. You'll go, no, 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 it's not. And this is what we need to do to stay strong and to be knowledgeable and to be anchored in God and in principles of liberty and freedom. And you will be, they'll look at you like a, like a beacon of light, like a shining city on the hill, my shining mama, my shining grandma, my shining auntie, who is going to speak peace and comfort and confidence and, and security uh, and um, and th that's how you will do your great work. And this is why you are God's secret weapon uh, at these end times. Okay, that's the end of our class. I'm going to turn it over to Z or Trusty for a few little announcements. And then we can you can ask me any questions you have about anything that we've talked about the last four weeks or, or any comments or great things that are going on in your world. Please come off. We want to hear about it.